Psalm 65 is where we are today. The text reads as follows. To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near. To dwell in your courts, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. So we'll walk through the text as we normally do. And then in your bulletin towards the end, we have four take-home points that may be of help to you. But what is David doing? This is his project. David is this man who understands what it means to be a shepherd. He remembers the day when God called him from being a shepherd to go and minister in the court of King Saul. He remembers the day when God blessed him by anointing him to be the upcoming king. He remembered when God blessed him by allowing him to defeat Goliath and many Philistines. He remembered on that glorious day when God actually made him king and gave him prosperity. But he also remembers the day when he was like Balaam, when he was like Jonah, when he was like the 12 unfaithful disciples, when he too fell into great sin. And David remembers the day when he poured out his heart to God and when God forgave him and restored him. And so now David has this project. He has this gift. He's pretty inspiring with his musical talent. On on top of that, he's inspired by the Holy Ghost. He's a hymn writer, and he now writes a hymn, writes a hymn of praise, probably at a feast of a Thanksgiving celebration in Israel, a lot like this, at the end of a year, at the end of harvest, and he presents it first to the choir master. Why? Because this is a personal song he has written under inspiration. Let's get it right musically because this is for all the people. This is for the children of Israel to join along and sing. He is going to use all of his leadership and his gifting to encourage his brothers and sisters to sing. Why? Because God is that good 
To him praise is due. This is the purpose of his song. So he starts off with silent meditation. That's what it says in the Hebrew. Oh yes, there's plenty of places in the Bible where you are to sing. You are to dance. You are to clap your hands. You are to shout and play loud instruments. And there are other times when you're just supposed to just fall on your knees, contemplate, and be in awe. And so that's what Scott seeks to do here in worship. There are going to be some songs when we rock it. There are going to be other songs when we uh, contemplate and maybe the music, bail, the instruments bail out for a second, giving you an opportunity to think more deeply. There are some times when it's great to sing about the sovereignty of God in a major key. And there's other times when it's great to sing about him being sovereign over us, even when it hurts. David starts off by saying, silent praise is due to whom? To you, O God. To whom? To you, the God who hears us when we praise, who hears us when we call. To hears us, he hears us all the time. We're talking to you, God and we're going to give you the best of our inner being. And God, we're going to attach with that silent praise the performance of our vows. That means we've made promises to you, some that we made circumstantial, some that we made because we received them from you, which you said, do this. We're going to keep our vows, and we're going to do it in Zion. That means, God, you have called your people to gather and assemble themselves together for seven feasts. You have called your people to gather and assemble in the city of our God. This is called Zion. This is called Jerusalem. This is where the Holy of Holies is found even before the temple is found. And David is saying, we are going to do this and I'm going to help you. My purpose is to write a song for you to sing when we come together. And it starts with silent praise. It flows from the heart out of the mouth. And who are we praising? The God of atonement. In verse 3, when iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Notice that, that iniquities and transgressions are used in a Hebraic way, which shows that they are synonymous here. And notice that he talks about his and he talks about theirs. So David understands what it's like to be hurting from without when people's iniquities are bothering him. He also understands what it's like to have those iniquities from within festering out and showing themselves. And he doesn't say we are here to atone for our own sins, which is what religion does. He gives praise to God who performs. It's not up to him to sacrifice things to get God's pleasure. It's not up to him to live more righteously to get God's pleasure. None of that atones for sin. It's not up to him to, to do these ceremonial rites and rituals to get God to like him more. He is giving praise to God who is the one who does the work. God is the one who performs. That word for atone is he covers over. As if in the Old Testament you had the mercy seat with the law, but God placed a covering over the law called the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. This is what God does to our sins. And David says, for this, even though we are falling underneath iniquities, have iniquities prevailed on you this week? I mean, have they met you? Have they knocked at the door? Have they been, has the door been opened? Have you, has, has that which is outside met that which is inside? And together, has it produced a cocktail of devilish sin? Have you been involved in something this week that just breaks your heart? David understands what it's like to have iniquities 
prevail. But as great as our sin is, God's grace is even more, and he gives praise to the God who atones. He gives praise to the God who selects. You see it right here. I know you guys sometimes think I go and try to find these Calvinistic predestinarian verses because i got to have the word election in every single sermon. I didn't go looking for it. It found me. This is what it says. God is the one who chooses. Next, what does he praise God for? God is the one who blesses those whom he chooses. What's the next thing that he praises God for? God is the one who chooses, blesses, and draws. That means he calls. That means he sees, hey, come over here. And we say, I can't hear you. Hey, come over here. And we say, don't want you. Hey, come over here. And we say, we don't want to hear you anymore. And we put the headsets on. We suppress the truth in Romans 1 language. And we go on about our way. He should leave us to our own selves. He should turn us over to our depravity. But at least for many in this room, he hadn't done so. Because he has chosen us. He blesses us. And he calls us. He comes and gets us. That's that effectual calling. And then when he finally gets us and we respond to him, how then does he respond? He adopts us. He brings us near. Blesses the one you choose and bring near to do what? To dwell in your courts. It says it there. To dwell in your good house. To dwell in your holy temple. Are you getting this? We're running this way as fast as he can. He comes and calls us. He draws us. And he says, welcome to my city. Oh, no, 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 that's not good enough. He says, welcome, come in the house. Oh, no, 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 that's not good enough. Welcome, come into the inner sanctum, the holy temple. This is what God does as he brings us in. I last week or two weeks ago was able to take a night and go to a place I've never been before. It's called the Biltmore House. There's a way that the Franks enjoyed the Biltmore House on our 31st anniversary different than the Vanderbilts did. I had to park a long way away. I had to stand in line to get in the front door. I was led through the corridors and told to stand behind the ropes. No one offered me a seat at that big table. Finally, as I left, we had a ticket for the next day to enjoy the grounds, but we thought that was a ticket to go walk back through the house. We showed back up the next day, happy to enjoy the, new, the house again and walk through it one more time, and we were told, you can't enter. This is not for you. I said, yes, but we're the Franks. I didn't say that. But you see the pictures of the Vanderbilts the rooms where they played, the pool where they swam, the stables where they went and jumped on the horses, and you realize, man, those people enjoyed something I've never been able to enjoy. You're Vanderbilt's in this story. God loves you. He chooses you. He draws you near, and he says like he said to the prodigal son, you showing up at my door and saying, can I just be a servant? No, that's not good enough. I got a ring for you. I have sandals for your feet, a robe for you, and we're doing prime rib tonight. 
This is what God does for you. This is why you're to bless him and praise him. He is the God who adopts. He's the God of sonship. He's the God who draws you near. As a matter of fact, he abides in you and you abide in him in the language of John. He's the God of support. He's the one who hears prayers. And then later on in this text, he's the one who answers them by awesome, righteous deeds. He's the God of power. By his strength, he made the mountains. Um, Some of them, perhaps, he spoke into being at creation. Some of them he brought out of the sea. Some of them he brought into creation by means of the universal flood, by earthquakes. This is what God does is he is that strong, that mighty, that not only does he raise up mountains, but he quells raging seas. And when you look about you and see, you see the tumults of the people, the tumults of the people, he's the God of nations. He's the one who allows peace when we, see, when we see peace because he is the one who does that, the God of power. He's the God of revelation. Those at all the ends of the earth, are, they can get up in the morning and they can see the beauty. They can see the night lights, the daylight of the sun. They see the four changing seasons. They look inside and see biology, the human body. They look at the animals. They look at this world order And it's just screaming as day after day the sun and the moon and the stars and all else of creation shouts forth his praises. And he's the God of harvest. He's the God who takes all of his might, all of his power, and what does he do? He presents himself as a farmer. Not yet calling myself a farmer. Last week I called myself a truck driver because I own a truck but I don't own a farm yet. But I know a little bit about farming because I read a book this week. God visits the earth. When God visits the earth, he waters it and softens it and makes the ground susceptible to the seed. He, He makes his trenches, his furrows. Then he waters it more He waters it sufficiently. You know why? Because the river of God, it's full. He's got plenty of water. He is the one who fertilizes the earth. He enriches it. And then a harvest comes up and he reaps the harvest. He provides grain, it says. He blesses growth. There's an annual bounty. So much so that the wagons that he uses to take his bounty back to his barns overflow the edges. They just pour out. So you can see where the wagons have gone because you follow their tracks and there's spilled produce everywhere because it's just that much produce that he provides. This is what God does finally because he's the God of glory. It says the wilderness now has been turned into pastures and the pastures of the wilderness, they overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valley deck themselves with grain. Man, all heaven and earth, whoever the they are, they shout and sing for joy. And this has been the mantra of many hymns. Beethoven wrote, God, all nature sings thy glory and thy works proclaim thy might. Ordered vastness in the heavens, ordered course of day and night. Beauty in the changing seasons, beauty in the storming sea, 
all the changing moods of nature praise the changeless trinity. Maybe you're more familiar with that old hymn, Ferris, Lord Jesus. But I won't read all of it, but he is the ruler of nature. Fair are the meadows, fair still the woodlands, robed in the blooming garb of spring, but Jesus is fairer. Fair is the sunshine, fair is still the moonlight and all the twinkling starry hosts. Jesus shines brighter. It ends with beautiful Savior, Lord of the nations, Son of God and Son of Man, glory and honor, praise, adoration, now and forevermore be thine. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. The Bible says, man, if you won't praise Him, the rocks will cry out. David is sitting here looking at his people and he's looking at you and me and he's going this. Praise is due. What say you? So now let's apply it. Four things about God that we see. First, he is the God of salvation. God sees the non-interested. He sees the depravity of men. and He sees the signs of revelation that he sends their way, but still they say no. He sees the blessings that he gives them that are undeserved, but he still sees them say, we're not interested. He sends forth his son, but they hate his son. They're not interested in his son. He gives them an invitation. All flesh, come to me. I am not just the God of the Israelite. He looks at their depravity. He sees them suppress the truth, deny their sin, discount his son. And what does he do? Romans tells us what he does to some people. He does turn them over to depravity. In other passages of Scripture, he takes the light that they had and he removes that from them. And then he waits to deliver the justice they have earned. Narrow is the way. Few there are that find it but I would tell you that there are few like that in this room. That in this room, you have found the way. That you could be lined up with these other friends and you have made your vows that Jesus Christ is mine. Why? Because He came after me. He wouldn't let me go. And though I am not perfect and I am full of sin, iniquity comes calling on my door, transgressions prevail against me, but I am His. He is mine. And for that, can't you give glory? Can't you rejoice that you're the elect, that you've been predestined from the beginning of time, that your name has been written in his book despite everything you've ever thought or done? Can't you rejoice that when he calls you, he would not stop calling you, that he came and got you, that he saw your free will, but would not leave you to your damned free will? But he came to take your free will, adjust it, morph it, change it, draw it. And then you freely came running to him saying, all to Jesus, I surrender. And then as you grew in understanding your Bible, you realized, man, I love him because he first loved me. This is an object, this is, this is something he has done, which should result in praise and glory. Are you ready to praise him for that? He is the God of our salvation. You were dead in your trespasses of sin and he gave you CPR. He came to his own. He invited them to the banquet. They said no. He went out and found other people and brought them in. 
And how in did he bring them? To the choices of seats at his table. You're like the high priest who gets to go in to the Holy of Holies. You're like Moses and the elders who get to go up on Sinai. You're like the bride in the Song of Songs who says, women, you understand how fantastic he is. You're singing songs, but I know him. I know him because we're intimate. This is what Jesus Christ has done for you, and he continually helps you. To him, praise is due. Secondly, he is the God of creation. Now, I want you to think about this hell hole that we live in. Now, I call it that because for Christians, this is the only hell you've heard me say. This is it. I mean, he did create everything perfectly. Oh, how grand it must have been to be in the Middle East in that paradise where God created everything and there was just no thorns and thistles. Animals got along with each other and humans liked each other and it was just a grand, naked, blissful place. But then came sin and God cursed the earth. This is why people die. This is why we struggle with disease. This is why the animals are dangerous. This is why storms hit our coast and de demolish cities. This is why people hate you. This is why there are wars and rumors of wars, because God intentionally cursed the earth. And yet, in the midst of this hellhole, has it been that bad? God continues to show common grace to everyone. And we sit here and we still eat and we still enjoy the best of technology and we are not yet in war like everywhere else in the world. And so we sit here and we say, wow, this is bad. But yet it's good and it's going to get better. For the God of the first creation is the God of the new creation. This isn't it. There is a day coming when he recreates the heavens and the earth, and there will be no curse, and there will only be blessing. And there we will have bodies that are perfect. There we will be reunited with loved ones that we miss. There we will go and introduce ourselves to former saints that we have never met. There we will always be looking for the new members who are coming to the heavenly throne. Hey, you're coming from Texas. Well done. Hey, you're coming from California. Are you supposed to be here? All right, that's a little joke. That intimacy that we will have with Jesus will be intimacy that we enjoy with everyone as we are known and as we know one another. The beauty of the new creation, the intelligence of brains that aren't cursed by a fall but yet are able to think fully. I wonder what technology in heaven might be like. And can you imagine that worship service? Oh, man, there's going to be times when we're just going to drop to our knees and it's not going to come out. But then there's going to be other times when it looks like a celebration, like you are jumping and screaming because I love him. I, 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 he's my savior. He's my God. I'm only here because of him and he loves me. And so now you're like a team that has won a national championship coming back home and the parade is happening. There's going to be both kinds of worship, I think, in glory. Can't you rejoice? Can't you praise him yet for what he has done in salvation and what he has done in creation and the new creation? 
Thirdly, can't you rejoice that he's the God of allocation? God owns it all. The Bible says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The parable of the steward is God owns a lot of stuff and he gives different people different amounts. We understand that God owns it all and we understand if you study the Bible that it's not some kind of a cultural thing where we distribute God's wealth ever. It's God who makes rich and poor. God is the one who gives and he takes away. God is the one who in his own sovereignty made Job rich, made Job poor, made Job rich again. God in his sovereignty was one who took David from being a poor shepherd to being the richest of kings. God is the one who took the nation of Israel from being slaves to being incredibly wealthy under the days of David to once again being in exile. This is what God does. He takes Ruth. He takes her from poverty as a widow to the wealth of living under Boaz's, in Boaz's house. God is the one who does this. God is the one who took his own son, Jesus Christ. And though he was rich, made him very poor. And now Jesus Christ owns the whole world. He is Lord of the nations. So what are we seeing here? It is not godly to be poor. It is not godly to be rich. It is not ungodly to be rich. It is not ungodly to be poor. It's ungodly to be ungodly, whether you're rich or you're poor. And so here we are now recognizing that God is the one who owns it all. God is the one who distributes what he wants to, to nations, to families, and to people. And what has God given us in this room? Where do you want to live other than where you live? I mean, what an incredible privilege it is. We have enjoyed so much wealth up to this point in my life that if he took it all away, those first 53 years were worth it. Bombs are not falling on my head. I don't have to hunt for water today. I don't live even in an inner city where I have to duck and run very often. Oh, I have money. I get paid well, thank you, for preaching and teaching when other ministers are thrown in prison. Other ministers have to work a full-time job because their church can't afford to pay them for that study. You have a couple of me here that are able to make their living because of what God has provided for you. The staff, we should be the most grateful people ever. What is it like to live in South Carolina where if there is a recession, it's hitting us, but man, it's not hitting us like other people and we have the funds what does it mean when your greatest problem is all of those hundreds of thousands of dollars in your portfolio is being adjusted by market correction when other people can't fill their freezers? Man, do we have jobs and money. Most of us have some good measure of health, and for those of us who are not doing well, we at least have great health care here to guide us and to help us. It's not a question of can I find a job. It's a question of when I go out there looking for a job, who wants me right now? If you're looking for a job, this is a good commodity for you to have. I mean, you're a good commodity. People need you. They want you. They're overpaying for you right now. 
What have we done to deserve our clothing, our jewelry, our big, huge Thanksgiving feasts? With Christmas coming up, with way more than 12 days of Christmas, we're going to be celebrating and eating and drinking and partying for lots of, for many days. And then comes New Year's and it starts all over again. And we get at the end of this year and can't we say the Lord who distributes has given us a harvest. We have more than we need. His wagons, which are in our hands, are overflowing. People can look at us and see God's blessing by what he's provided. Oh, praise is due. So finally, we get to the end. The God of motivation. What is he doing? He's motivating us to worship. He's using David to talk to the Israelites. He's using David and Joe to talk to the Horizonites. And we understand farm language a little bit. But man, do we understand the language of the bank. Our balance sheets are looking good. The language of the market. Our portfolio is doing good. The language of the accountant. Our net worth is doing pretty good. We have provision, abundance, savings, and pleasure. And now how are we going to respond? Just a moment of negativity. I'll get back to happiness. Self-atonement. Well, I got to work hard to make God like me. Discounting the performance of Jesus Christ. How else can we respond to what God has done? Depression, pessimism, negativity, and spouting it everywhere we go in person, in our meetings, and using our social media. Arrogance. I am who I am because I am who I am. I'm a self-made man, which means I only have myself to praise. And it gives me now the ability to look at you and compare and say, you don't measure up. Prayerlessness. Because I'm a self-made man and I got the power, I don't need to spend lots of time every single day talking to God about what he would have me do and how he would have me do it. And then comes the entitlement mentality where we think we're owed anything by other people or by God, which leads to our pouting, our complaining, our grumbling, our anger, and our bitterness. But not today. We're done with that. We are repenting right now. We have been reminded of God's love, His provision for us. And if you're like me, on the inside, you're now starting to go, I want to give praise to whom praise is due. I really want to. How do I want to give praise to my God? Oh, I want to fall on my knees and in silent worship talk to Him. Then I want to use my influence to gather my family like David's gathering his and bring them to Zion. Uh, not Jerusalem any longer. That's not where the Holy of Holies is found. The Holy of Holies is here. It's within, but God is present when people gather and do not forsake the assembling of themselves together. And this is why we're here. 
We're here not because we have to perform to get God to like us, but because to Him praise is due, and now we're using all of our influence to gather people to come. And when we come here, what are we going to do? We are going to sing His praise, learn from His text, but we're also going to perform our vows. That's what we do. We've stood before Him, and we've made vows, all kinds of vows in His name. And so I want to keep my vows, vows of sanctification. When I look at God and I say, you hate that, and I don't want to ever do it again. I want to keep that vow. And when I don't, I want to repent. And what do I want to do? Keep that vow. And when I don't, I want to repent. Vows of sanctification, vows of stewardship. Oh, God. I would love to give 10% to you this year. I'd love to give whatever to missions. I would love to sell something and give a portion of that to some parachurch ministry. We make vows. You want to keep them as part of worship. Praise is due to Him. Vows of membership. I, as an elder, swear to pastor these people. I, as a deacon, swear to serve these people. I, as a congregation member, swear to serve these people. I, as a congregation member, swear with all the means that God will help me to help that couple raise their own child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We swear these things. This is vow language. We perform them. Vows of church leadership, vows of church membership, vows of civil leadership. I don't know if anyone here is a public official but that's what you do is you stand there and in the name of God, you swear that you're going to be the biggest servant of that realm of authority that has been granted you by the Constitution. And then we have marriage where we swear for the rest of our lives we will be faithful to one another, we will forgive one another, we will confess our sins to one another, we will die for one another, we will consider ourselves lesser than one another, we will stick with it in the good times and the bad times, this is what worship looks like because God is that good. We show up and then we perform and we keep our vows. We seek and accept the lost from everywhere because three times in this passage, God has made it clear that He is the God of the Koreans. He's the God of our Hispanic friends. Andrew Chabasinga was supposed to be here. He's the God of our African brothers and sisters. I don't want to keep going because I'll miss more people. He's even the God of those in the United States of America. Aren't we glad that he is the God who is building this multinational, multicultural group of worshipers? Friends, God has been so, so good to us. Praise is due.